Money FM 89.3, best of weekends. Our next guest has flown more than 4,300 hours in space. Uh, joining us now from Western Massachusetts in the U.S. is Dr. Katie Coleman, a chemist, retired NASA astronaut, retired Air Force colonel. Oh, my goodness, you've got so many accolades. Uh, Dr. Coleman, thanks so much for being with us today. It's great to have you on. Well, thanks. It's, I think it's the first time I, I've talked to somebody where it's like nighttime for me and morning for them, but still the same day somehow for all of us. <laughs> well, you know, we do that every day, so you can join us whenever you want. <laughs> well, we're happy to have you. And, and uh, of course, about – I guess it was about 12 hours ago you did a program online called An Evening with an Astronaut, and that was a collaboration with the U.S. Embassy in Singapore and the Science Center Singapore and Girls to Pioneers. I know that you're very passionate about STEM and, and girls and higher education. Tell us a little bit about that program. How did it go last night? Well, it was great fun for me. They had really actually great questions and pretty thoughtful ones, and the, the hosts were fascinating. They'd been to space camp, and then kids wrote in, and, and I, I was actually just impressed from the very first conversation about this event. It was just clear that, you know, these groups, all of them, the Embassy, the Science Center, and Girls to Pioneers, were really serious about, you know, we've got some people who really, you know, want to hear about this kind of stuff, and, and also need to, because we want everybody to realize that, you know, they can be the explorers of the future. Well, Dr. Coleman, I'm going to ask lots of fanboy questions. I don't apologize for it. You are the first astronaut I have ever spoken to. So I think I'm speaking on behalf of a nation when I ask you, you're an astronaut. What was the inspiration for you? How did you get on that journey? Was it something from school or childhood or was it how did you become an astronaut? Well, part of the reason I was really motivated to be part of last night's adventure with the Science Center was because for me that came really late. I was born in 1960. And so there weren't a lot of women in the space program back when I was growing up. And it really wasn't until I was in college. I went to MIT as an undergrad. And Dr. Sally Ride, the first American woman astronaut, came and talked. And I remember, wow. like, what classroom I was sitting in and where I was sitting. And, and, and it meant a lot to me to see someone that I could relate to. And, hmm. you know, when I see the pictures of the famous astronauts, I'm pretty excited about the airplane, but it's hard to identify with the rest of the picture because it was all guys. So I really wanted to change that for for girls growing up today. Very interesting. You know, I have to just throw this in here really quickly. I was born in 1963, and my parents named me after John Glenn, the first American to orbit the Earth in 1962. Oh. And, and it was that age, you know, when parents were naming their kids after American heroes. You know, of course, John F. Kennedy was named, you know, and Martin, Martin Luther King. A lot of kids were named after him. So. And this is the point where I really want to say I was named after Neil Armstrong, but actually I was <laughs> named after Neil Diamond. <laughs> <laughs> But I'll say for today it was Neil Armstrong. <laughs> well, in any case, but but your point is well your point is well made that you know back in those in those early days it was mostly men uh, certainly that were going into space it was all men mm. and you know you have been on the space shuttle twice you've spent time on the International Space Station uh, on I believe your third trip up and were there any particular challenges that you had to face I mean was there a was there a hard glass ceiling that you had to pop through or was it strictly you know your amazing uh, talent and and knowledge got you through it well you know i'll say something maybe i i, I don't know it's, it's it's hard to tell people because it's not what we want to hear but there's still a lot of room to make sure that girls and minorities really understand that 
they can do the same jobs that have traditionally been, at least in our country in the U.S., you know, having uh, white guys do. And, you know, for example, we talk about uh, Mercury, Gemini, Apollo, and we think of those astronauts. But, you know, recent, more recently it's been clear um, that there's a lot of people behind the scenes and, and a lot of women, a lot of minorities, mm. who made those journeys possible. And, in fact, it was a very exciting day yesterday uh, in the U.S. because NASA headquarters was renamed for Mary Jackson, who was one of those computers, those women that did the calculations. Yeah, of course, uh, there was a movie. Get, you know, figure out. There was a movie yeah. about her, right? Hidden figures. Yeah, yeah. It's true. And, you know, I actually showed a slide. Um, you know, I didn't show it in this talk today because it was kind of not exactly what we were talking about. But I often show a slide from that movie because, you know, Catherine Johnson is, uh, is, is actually the computer that that movie was about. And Mary Jackson was the, the engineer mm. or more engineering oriented. But the movie's about all of them. And in, it's called Hidden Figures, and yet, you know, there are women of color in, in, in this movie, and, and actually in every picture I've seen, they're dressed in, in clothes of color, and they're in a sea of, like, white guys and, you know, skinny black ties, white guys, white shirts, and skinny black ties. And it's really hard to miss them in a picture. And, and ironically, I have a picture of myself and my crew meeting President Obama, and we had a slight mix-up about the dress code, and everybody's wearing, like, a dark suit, except for me, who's wearing a lime green shirt. You know, it's just a costume picture. But, you know, it's, um, it's really just, you know, it's, these people, you know, there's lots of people who are a part of that. And, and the deal is, is that we have a lot of big challenges here on the planet and off the planet, and we need everybody to be a part of it. And I'm actually pretty excited that, you know, through just what you're doing right now, you know, I mean, you're interviewing me on the radio. And, and so that means that people are going to hear the voice of somebody maybe they didn't quite expect talking about living on the space station. And in popular media, I mean, in, in museums and magazines and movies, by featuring, you know, the people that are doing the work, we have the ability to change the future. And that's pretty exciting to me. So true. We're talking with Dr. Katie Coleman, sorry, a retired American astronaut. That's okay. <laughs> and, and, and Katie, you make such a good point there because here's an interesting anecdote. I've watched Hidden Figures with my daughter twice, but and I shouldn't mm-hmm. say this because it's sacrilege, but she found Apollo 13 a little bit boring because she said her words, there's no women in the film. <laughs> she empathizes and identifies with hidden figures in a way that she doesn't really connect with Apollo 13. So it's such an important thing, isn't it? When you see someone who looks like you, sounds like you, behaves like you on screen or like yourself in real life, it could be so inspirational, can't it? When they can see there is actually a path forward for women, for people of color to do what you've done. I mean, it makes such a difference. And it takes a little, sometimes, effort. You know, for example, um, the mission that's um, pretty, it was just recently the SpaceX Demo 2 mission, where it's the first time to send humans on the SpaceX spacecraft up to the space station. And the crew just happened to be two white guys. And, mm-hmm. and for example, this is part of the commercial crew program. So there's, it's not just SpaceX, it's Boeing and, and other companies. And so Boeing could have just as easily been the first to go. And that's, that test pilot, the, the lead pilot for that mission is Nicole Mann, a woman. So it could mm-hmm. have been, you know, a more sort of, you know, mm-hmm. crew that looked a little more diverse, but it, it wasn't. And then networks, you know, did their best to make sure that women and minorities were involved in telling the stories of the mission. Mm. Because you can, you know, you can find different ways to make sure that 
people know that they could be part of it. When you look at the the current makeup of the space program now, of course, there are always uh, astronauts who are in training, you know, preparing for whatever might come up. Do you know how many women are actually in that kind of position right now as astronauts in training and or how many would be sort of in that total in that program getting ready to do something? Actually, so I'm retired from there, and it occurred to me I haven't really checked in lately. Mm. But basically, when I was back there, it was about maybe between 15 and 20 percent of mm-hmm. our women. And it's probably a little closer to 25 percent now, but it's climbing all the time because when they're selecting classes now, um, the two classes ago, it was four men and four women, so 50 percent. Yeah. And many uh, almost equal in the last class. And so pretty soon you start to really change those numbers and 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 you realize that you know we sort of make jokes uh well anyway that you know in some ways uh you know there's a few of us that are brunette astronauts and, and we get mixed up sometimes because you know it's, it's, we're sort of the same um <laughs> 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 anyways but you know when you when you have enough people then people really start to understand that we're all part of the team yeah. and and i and i have to say that it's a very i mean i really loved working there and the only reason I sort of bring some of these facts to light, you know, you asked if I had to be, you know, amazing and what were the, the barriers. I mean, I will say that in this world, it's still pretty hard to be, I think, um, for someone maybe to be an engineer who is in, uh, who's mediocre. I think a woman engineer is mediocre. It's probably not going to be able to be very successful. I think the women still have to be better in their fields yeah. um, when they're not traditional women's fields. And at the same time, by having data and having metrics, and I think NASA has been really good about taking this on, when they really start to measure, they go, oh, wow, okay, this yeah. is who can do the job. We're talking about so Dr. It's, it's changing. Yeah, sorry, didn't mean to cut you off. We're, we're talking with Dr. Katie Coleman, the retired astronaut, U.S. astronaut. And Katie, you mentioned something about the, the SpaceX uh, shot that just went up a few weeks ago. Uh, first time in a, in a decade, uh, more than a decade, that the uh, the U.S. has launched its own astronauts. Um, how did you feel about about that moment? Was that was that as big a deal as it was perhaps portrayed uh, by some of, especially the U.S. media, for the U.S. to have our own capability to get our astronauts back in space, and especially up to the international. Space Station. And I'm going to say yes, and in two senses. You know, first, I mean, the, the U.S. is a powerful nation in the space business, and you know, you want to be able to use all those capabilities, right? Just basically in your backyard, because that's where it's easiest. It's where you control, you know, what's going on and when, and you know, it's not so based on long travel and people away from their families. It's just plain old easier to launch from your own soil if you can. And and now is the right time. But also, you know, for the world in general, having one more robust place you know, to, to, to launch from, to get people up and down to that space station. And that space station is a key part of our, our plot, of our plan to go further. Mm. Because, you know, in order to get to Mars, there's a lot of things that we need to know that we don't know yet. And some of those things we can find out on a space station, just a couple hundred kilometers, you know, above the Earth, going around the Earth every hour and a half. But it's, I mean, it's pretty close to home. It takes eight and a half minutes to get there. But we can also find some things out on the moon. And, and that mission to have the, the next man and the first woman on the moon in 2024 is a, is a serious plan that looks uh, looks like it's coming along. And I am both envious and so excited I just can barely breathe about <laughs> that. But, uh, you know, that's another place to learn things. And then on the way to Mars itself. And so the more we can learn on that space station, um, the better off we're all going to be in terms of lessons for space, but also lessons for Earth. 
And we learn a lot of scientific things up there that are equally applicable down here um, on the Earth. But it really does start with access. I mean, when you have so few subjects, so few astronauts, so few, I mean, every one of us, if I went back, I would actually try to sleep more. (laughs) <laughs> it's, it's so busy, I and mean, I'm never good at going to bed early anyway, but it's, it's, the experiments are, it's so clear that they're so important and they can't be done down here on Earth that you just want to stay up later and, you know, just get more work done because those are experiments that are really important. So by increasing the crew, you know, by one or two or three, it's really so valuable and being able to do it to have more people have access. We, I mean, we exercise about an hour and a half a day up there wow. just to maintain our bone loss and to keep it from, to keep ourselves from losing bone and a half an hour to clean up. And so, I mean, that's two hours out of a supposedly eight-hour day, but I would really call it closer to 12, mm-hmm. at least. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, uh, anyway, so having more people is more better. Yeah, well, on that point of more people, I mean, I was chatting with Glenn about this off-air. How many people have been into space first? I mean, I'm, I'm assuming it's a few hundred, roughly, maybe more. And of that percentage, roughly, how many would be women? Would you have a rough idea? You have the wrong numbers, person, but it's about it's over 600. I mean, it's okay. 600 and something people mm. have been to space. Um, I was actually the 333rd. Oh, they wow. actually kind of figure out, like, Whose toes cross first as you're going up, right? <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, um, so I thought that was a pretty good number to have. You know, it's probably only about 50-something women out of that total, kind of reaching for numbers. But it's something yeah. in no, that No, no, I just so, I want a ballpark yeah. figure. And on that point, you know, I just recently watched the Apollo 11 documentary, which I just thought was extraordinary with all that NASA footage. And Is that the one where you watch it on a big screen? Yes, brilliant, absolutely oh, wasn't amazing. Wasn't it just amazing? Extraordinary. And they found all this pristine footage from NASA, and it's filmed. I mean, it's screened chronologically, and they just rely. And anybody listening should watch Apollo Eleven. You can currently watch it, I think, on either HBO or Netflix, one or the other. But please watch it. And when I was watching it, what struck me, and I said to my wife, if I was going into space looking down at Earth, the terror, the sheer terror. <laughs> That is my home and that fear that I may or may not get back. Maybe I'm being melodramatic, but I think many people listening can't even compute, can't even quantify what that feels like to look down at the planet Earth. What was it like for you the first time it happened? I just find that extraordinary. To me, it's not about fear. It's it's actually about wonder, Mm. really. I mean, and and also like my before I went to space, I, I thought, okay, I'm going to go to space. I'm going to go from Earth, and I'm going to go up to space. I'm going to go to this different place. And yet, once you do that, you realize that Earth is just bigger than we thought because space is a part of the place we live. It's just that not enough people have been there yet. So I actually felt very close. I, I felt closer to more people because I could see all of them. And, 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 you know, looking down and just thought, oh, they're all down there. Every single earthling, except for myself and my five crewmates, is down there. And so they're all down there, and we're all connected. And if only they could just meet each other and find each other, then we could solve literally anything. And I actually see in this virtual existence that we've been kind of pushed into through COVID-19, I see the, the wildest partners finding each other and solving problems together. And I think that's pretty wonderful. Mm. Talking with uh, Dr. Katie Coleman, retired NASA astronaut. And Katie, when, when you, you've been asked probably every question under the sun and the moon about what it was like to be in space and weightlessness and all that, what is the one question or the one thing that you think is really important for 
or maybe unexpected for people to know um, who have not been into space, to know about that experience, whether it's getting there or coming back or being in space? What is something that you really enjoy telling people about that, that they might not know? Mostly just that it was just so clear to me that we belong there. I had three missions. The first one was like the longest shuttle mission ever. And I remember as we got ready to go come home and land, I just thought, why in the world are we coming home? We have so much work to do up here. And it's just, this is our place and people don't know about it yet. I mean, mm. it's, it's part of us and people just haven't been. So I'd like them to know that. But, you know, for a lot of the, I mean, actually for a lot of people, what I really like them to know is they, you know, I'm very, very proud of the work that I did with NASA and as an astronaut and getting to represent literally everybody up there. But at the same time, um, we're real people that, you know, I'm really good at some things and I am actually really terrible at others. And, and on a crew, you know, each of us brings something to the table that others don't. And then there are the, the other things that people have to help us out with. And, and we are just normal people, just like everybody else. And I just want, you know, especially the younger people to know that because when they think, well, how could I do this? I'm, you know, I'm like this or this or this. I mean, you know, if you're interested, we have things that we would love you to help us with in the space program. And just and I don't mean NASA, I mean in the World Space Program. Absolutely. And just a final one for me so I can go back and tell my daughter, where do you see the space program going if you could get your crystal ball out looking into the future? Is Mars a possibility in our lifetime? Do you see us setting up colonies on the moon? Where do you see ourselves going? I'm going to say yes to all of those. I mean, those, there's no question that those are going to happen. They're going to happen slower than we would like. I mean, part of a, a lot of us who are part of exploring, I think, are like, oh, you know, we haven't gone yet. But, you know, at the same time, part of the reason we haven't gone to Mars yet is because we're not ready. It's because it's hard. And, and there's things that are we're still really learning about how to be able to get there and get back safely and, and actually in good enough shape and with enough equipment to really do something, you know, both on the moon and Mars. And, and the people who work for the space companies and for NASA and the other space agencies around the world, I mean, people, we, we understand, even though I don't work there anymore, you know, we understand how hard it is and how many things we have to figure out. And we're on the path to do that. And it's going to happen, and it's probably going to be people like your daughter that will be going. But there's no question that we will be going further than this planet. And I think the Moon and Mars are the next likely targets. Dr. Katie Coleman, retired U.S. astronaut, we could talk with you all day. Unfortunately, we've got to let you go. Me too. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much, uh, not only for doing your your webinar last night, but for being with us today. Really enjoyed uh, this chance to uh, chat with you. I didn't even get to ask you my question about the new uh, show Space Force, but uh, (laughs) we'll have to wait for that one for another day, I think. (laughs) It's pretty funny, I think. I've only seen the first episode, but I did laugh for yards. It's not really like that, okay? <laughs> uh, that's good. That's good information. Uh, Dr. Katie Coleman, thank you so much for being with us today on Money FM. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download the SPH Radio app available on Google Play or the App Store.